Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. This is our Sunday School lesson for August the 7th of 2022. And uh, this will be about the last hurrah before school starts uh, shortly. And um, we are be going to look at this in a way that, uh, as we study the life of Daniel, we're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar just a little bit. As I've said before, when we've kind of covered some things about Nebuchadnezzar, it's not exactly about the life of Daniel, but boy, it has Daniel's fingerprints all over it. If it were a crime scene investigation, we would say it's got Daniel's DNA everywhere. And uh, part of what I'm thinking about here, well, the title of it is Nebuchadnezzar's Confession Did Not Save Him. I want us to be really clear about that because I see so much in uh, the life of Nebuchadnezzar and some of the things that he said that um, I see in a lot of people living in America, especially today. I'm sure it's a worldwide problem, but in America, we know the right things. We've been exposed to the right things. We may say the right things, but um, as somebody said one time, it's like, getting a flu shot just enough to keep you from getting the real thing. And uh, I don't think there's any doubt that America is the most evangelized nation on the face of the earth. Um, my goodness, you uh, think about going back to our founding and uh, even in the Declaration of Independence, it was certainly not a secular or atheistic document at all. And even during the uh, Constitutional Convention, uh, people that made notes on it, Madison and other people that were there, they made reference to, uh, I don't even remember how many hundreds of scripture verses that were used and quoted even in the framing of the Constitution. And certainly there were churches and religious holidays and then um, the evangelization of the nation. This has uh, always been kind of interesting to me. My great-grandmother was a, a Methodist, but she was known, and in the uh, days in which she lived, Methodists were known as the Shouten Methodist, especially in this part of the country. And it was Methodists, the uh, old um, circuit-riding preachers, you know, on their horses, that would uh, maybe take three or four churches in a certain area and preach one Sunday in one place, another Sunday in another place, and, and do that for a month, as well as those who went into new parts of the frontier and would just cold turkey start preaching the gospel to Native Americans or to settlers, whoever might be there, and win them to faith in the Lord. And they were back then the most aggressive evangelistic denomination that we had in our nation. Then uh, Baptists, particularly Southern Baptists, kind of took up that charge and we started evangelizing and spreading the gospel and planting churches and doing all of that um, so that now the Southern Baptist Convention is the uh, largest non-Protestant or non-Catholic denomination 
in the United States of America. And it came from literally nowhere, from the South, after particularly the defeat of the South and the Civil War, um, out of poverty, out of a rural-type background. And uh, it's just amazing what God has done through our convention. However, with that being said, there are some drawbacks on all of that. Because you have a lot of people in America today that they know things about God, and they know things about the gospel, and they make an assumption that if I can say the right things in the right way about the Bible and about God and about the gospel, that must mean that I'm saved, right? Some denominations have a process where they put their children through a certain uh, training period, a certain catechism, and then at the end of that, when they can answer a certain number of questions correctly, then they have a confirmation for them. And for a lot of people, that's nothing more than just a rite of passage that they go through when they reach 11 or 12 years of age. But initially, they were confirming that they were saved, that they were actually a Christian, that they believed the right things. But it's turned into, instead of something that really is a transformation of the heart and of the life, it's turned into just another ritual that you go through and then claim that you are saved, claim that you are a Christian. And I'm afraid that even among Southern Baptists now, that is the same way. We send our kids to things like Awana. We send our, thing, our kids to children's camp. We uh, do things with them in Sunday school. And then at a certain point, they walk an aisle, they pray a prayer, they get dunked in water, and then they live the le rest of their life assuming that they are going to heaven. And our churches are filled with, um, we would say, unregenerate church members, people that claim to be saved but are actually lost. They've never been born again. They've never repented of their sins. And uh, that means that our message is diluted. It means our passion for glorifying the Lord is diluted. They're largely uninterested in that. And it also means that sadly, they're going to be like the person in Matthew 7 who assumed he was going to heaven and ended up being told by the Lord, depart from me, I never knew you. So when I say these things, I say these things out of a heart of compassion because I was that person. You, most of you know my story on that. I was that person. I knew the answers. And I guess to a certain extent, I even would say I believed in those answers. But um, I was kind of probably have more in common with Nebuchadnezzar than I had with the uh, gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I fear that I'm not alone in that. And so... Uh, all of these people, particularly when we come to political seasons, boy, you're going to hear the biggest reprobates in the world, quoting Bible verses, attending churches, giving credence to God and um, wanting to uh, kind of cozy up to especially evangelical Christians. And we have seen over my lifetime anyway, uh, every election, there are these people that want to uh, tell 
Christians and to tell churches, I'm with you and I'm a Bible believer and I've been saved as well. And then when you look at their lifestyle and listen to their language and all of the things that they kind of gravitate toward, they're anything but a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so many times political parties will kind of cozy up to us, say the things we want to hear, and then we're largely ignored until the next election. Now, some of that is probably our own fault because we put up with it and we don't demand that they live up to their promises. But um, and then they also kind of know that where else are we going to go and who else are we going to vote for? because the opponent is so much worse and so much more uh, blatantly unchristian. So they, they kind of know they've got it made with us. But uh, this is why I think that it's important for us as believers to know the truth, to understand the truth, and to get more aggressive about our prayer life and about sharing the gospel for the glory of God. Because Nebuchadnezzar said some things here, and this isn't the only time that he said the things that must have been encouraging to people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we don't find in this story here that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a saved man until later on in his life. So we're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture that we've already covered from a different angle, Daniel chapter 2, verse 46 through 49. So if you turn in your Bibles there, that's where we'll start. And then we'll go later on to chapter 3, verses 26 through 30. And so uh, living like that in this type of a culture, um, we might think that people are Christians or we assume they're Christians, or we hope they're Christians, we're going to be looking at some things that will help us to uh, be a little bit more um, discerning on this. Romans chapter 3 verse 11 says, No one understands or seeks for God, but uh, believers only, and believers certainly can. And so when we look at other people that are falling short of the glory of God as we fall short of the glory of God, sometimes we may ask, then, what is the difference? And it's that a lost person, when they sin, they are running towards sin and away from God. We may stumble into sin, but as believers, we are running toward God, towards God. We are seeking the Lord. So we go into our lesson, and I'll make the point and then read the scripture so we can stay up with it, that number one, deceiving appearances with an unchanged heart. Deceiving, and I might should have said, having um, a deceiving appearance with an unchanged heart. That's where we trip up. That's where we fall down. And that's uh, chapter 2, verse 46. Look, look at what he did. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Okay, what does it take to get a king off of his throne? Well, most of the time, you're going to find people bow before the king, and yet in this case, the king is bowing before a person 
And as we read the context of the rest of the scripture, that is his position of respect and honor and worship to Daniel and his God. Now, remember, this is in the uh, story of the dream that none of the wise men could tell the king what he had dreamed, and therefore they couldn't give an interpretation, but Daniel did. And the king is very moved by this. This is kind of an emotional thing. Now, think about a lot of what you have seen over the years in church. Sometimes people have the appearance of getting saved. Uh, if, if there's an altar call, they may walk down the front, they may take the preacher by the hand, they may speak to a counselor, they may hear the words of the gospel, they may repeat the words of the gospel, even to uh, pray a prayer and to, uh, be dunked in the baptistry. But the appearance of this is not the same as having a heart that has been changed. In the Old Testament, God talked about a time when he would take out the stone heart, meaning cold and dead, hard and lifeless, and replace it with a heart of flesh. And by flesh there, he's not talking about the sinful nature or anything like that. It means a living, beating heart. And uh, it's tender and it's soft before the Lord. Well, that's where the heart change is what really matters. And we all know that. And yet there are times when um, I remember meeting with a family one time and uh, they were telling me about the deceased. I didn't know them. I was doing them a favor. And uh, as I asked questions, it was pretty apparent this guy was pretty wild, pretty rebellious, very, very sinful, had no interest in spiritual things whatsoever. Because everything that they told me and every story they told me and every adjective they used pointed to the fact that this guy had no spiritual interest whatsoever. And then his mother said, but with all of that, there's one good thing we know. And I said, what is that? Oh, when he was eight years old, he uh, walked an aisle and was baptized. So we know that he's in heaven. Well, not so sure about those kind of things. Those leave me uneasy because a lot of times they're like Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, well, he was honoring God's man. He was praising the Lord, but that's not the same as humbly uh, honoring God. And so the posture there may infer worship, but worship is not a matter of posture. It's a matter of the heart. And that's the problem we uh, can't see the heart, so we don't always know. But we can see, of course, the action, and we can sense the attitude of people. And Nebuchadnezzar just didn't get it. And the worship seemed to be centered around a man. You ever known anybody like that? Why do you go to this particular church? And they go because of a man. They go because of a friend. They go because of a spouse. They go because of a parent. They go because they like the preacher or something. And God doesn't really enter into it except as maybe an afterthought. And I'm afraid our churches are filled with those type of things. I like the music. I like the program. I like the atmosphere. Uh, I like the emphasis, whatever it may be. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. This was centered around something other than God. So that leads us to number two. Acknowledging God does not mean that you know God. Acknowledging God does not mean that you know God. I acknowledge 
that George Washington was the uh, leader of the Revolutionary War and the first president of the United States. However, I've never met the man. I do not know the man. I don't know what he was like. I've never heard him crack a joke. I've never heard him tell a story or do anything like that. And yet I acknowledge him. And for so many people, God is nothing more than an acknowledgement of someone who exists, maybe like a historical figure, as we have just said, but that doesn't mean that you actually have a relationship with God. And this is the danger. Sometimes even when we raise our children in church, they learn the right answers and they acknowledge that a God exists, but they never are born again. Look at chapter 2, verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, now this is important here, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Now notice how man-centered that was, and notice how impersonal all of this is. This is uh, not my God, but your God. And yes, he's a big time God. He's greater than all the other gods. And you are the one who revealed the secret to me. Well, actually, it was God. Daniel was just the vessel. So you don't have to die as an atheist to go to hell. Okay? Even theists go to hell. But if you don't really know God and haven't trusted him and have a relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ, then you still go to hell. And uh, even though you have some sort of belief and Nebuchadnezzar spoke the truth here, but so did the man in Matthew chapter 7, 21. Remember these words? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So this person has the right title. They even repeat the title. And later they talk about all of the things that they did as the basis for why they should get into heaven. In other words, it was performance-based. It was works-based. Look what I did for you, Lord. You owe me. That type of, type of idea. Well, that's dead wrong, isn't it? And it was also the kind of thing that would say, uh, it's kind of inferred here, look how much better I am than everybody else that is being judged. Surely I will be in. And that self-righteousness is a killer. That pride is a killer. And just because they knew about Jesus and who Jesus was, obviously Jesus is not going to let them into heaven. And that's kind of where Nebuchadnezzar is. And I think there are a lot of people there. We need to pray for them and we need to witness to them. And we don't need to just make a passive assumption about them because they can say the right words. Number three, respecting, supporting, and promoting God's people can be false assurance. Look at chapter 2, 48 and 49. What did the king do? Well, surely he was saved. Look at this. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And that's not all. Can't you hear like on a game show? And that's not all. 
Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Well, look who my friends are. All my friends are Christians, and I support Christian ministries, and I support Christian preachers. Therefore, I must be saved and must be someone who's going to heaven. I wonder how many supporters and contributors to the Billy Graham organization over the last 70 or 80 years are going to find themselves in that Matthew 7 situation where they say, but Lord, I gave thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars in some cases, to the Billy Graham organization. And yet Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. How many people contributed to local churches like Graceway? And they said, there, there I feel good. I gave a tithe of my money. I gave a tithe of my income. Therefore, I, I'm good. And they don't really love God. They don't obey God. They don't have any interest in God. N nothing like that at all. It's all just following rules, joining the club, being a part in a minimalistic way of what they can do and thinking that they're going to go to heaven. Look who I support. Maybe they support an evangelist. Maybe they support a missionary, um, something like that. Um, that. That would be a terrible place to be in. Nebuchadnezzar supported Daniel, promoted Daniel, trusted Daniel, obviously. In fact, I'll go even so far to say as I read through the book of Daniel and his interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, I think Nebuchadnezzar genuinely had affection for Daniel. But none of those things have anything to do with salvation. Now, we would expect those things to be the case if you're genuinely saved. Okay, so let's say saved people will support the people of God and the man of God. But just because you support the people of God and the man of God does not necessarily mean you're saved. That's not the basis of our salvation. So um, Daniel's power in all of this is certainly undeniable. And Daniel's superiority over the wise men there was unquestionable. And Nebuchadnezzar was amazed. That's a good thing to be. He was grateful. But you don't find anything about repentance, do you? Nothing about repentance. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 3, 26 through 30. And this is after uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. So we'll say number four, seeing God's power is different than trusting God's grace. The Bible says in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 3, then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace. I'm sure he stayed back enough to not be killed like the guards were. And he spoke saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Well, then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, surely out of curiosity and awe and fear, right? And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power, the hair 
uh, of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Now, they all saw this. They all witnessed this. Have you ever met somebody who kind of had a story about answered prayer, and they had a testimony about what God did in their grandmother's life or their grandfather's life or someone else that they knew. And you kind of want to ask the question, well, what about in your life? What has God done in your life? How did that change you as you relate to God? And so seeing the men in the fire must have been breathtaking, and it certainly got his attention. He called them out. And uh, certainly Nebuchadnezzar would have some fear in all of this. This is, this is an amazing thing. And uh, this doesn't happen every day. And uh, what is it about these Jews, he must be thinking, uh, Daniel included. What, what, what's going on here? I thought my gods had conquered their gods. I thought I was king over them. And yet they're showing now that they and their god uh, is not under my control at all. There must have been a certain amount of fear. And uh, notice what he said and what he asked, you know, in this. Uh, as you read this story, he talks about their God, the most high God, he says. Well, let me just ask you a question. What else is he going to say? What else would or could he say? And he has said similar things before to all of this, and yet there's still a distance between him and the personal relationship that he would have with this God that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, a difference in his faith and his commitment. Number five, intellectual knowledge is not surrender. The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, well, that could be just an intellectual confession. But it also said, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then thou shalt be saved. And so there's got to be more than just the intellectual assent or knowledge to all of that. Look at chapter 3, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See what I did there? who sent his angel, that's that fourth man in the fire, and delivered his servants who trusted him, not that he did, but they did, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except whom? Well, there it is. Finish the verse. Their own god. So notice that nothing here is personal. It's their God and your God. He's big and he's powerful, and I acknowledge that, but there's nothing here that shows that he had surrendered to this God. And uh, he was only stating what was obvious. What else, are, again, are you going to say about this? This is an amazing, amazing, jaw-dropping thing, right? And Here's the way we kind of sum this point up. He was an observer, not a participant. And I wonder how many times our churches are filled with people that they observe worship, but they never, never do it because their heart is dead. They're lifeless. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And again, because I was one of them, that breaks my heart. And number six, worship 
cannot be legislated. So the king does what a king has this tendency to do. When he sees something, when he wants something, when he thinks something, what does he do? He kind of brings down the gavel and he makes a law here. Well, what, what else is a dead person going to do? They don't really have a relationship with God like you and I might. They're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so they make a law. And a lot of people in churches, they live by laws, dress a certain way, act a certain way, live a certain way. And it's not really from the heart. It's just a rule to be followed, a tradition to be kept. And they're missing the mark. They're falling short of the glory of God. Look at verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree, Nebuchadnezzar says, that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything amiss against the God, here it is again, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made in ash heap. It's kind of what he said he was going to do to the wise men earlier, isn't it? Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Now notice he didn't say there is no other God. He said there's no other one who can do this. He's still a polytheist. He's still holding out uh, that the other gods are worth something, that they have things they can do, but this one is bigger, better, and badder than all of the rest of them, right? Verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, in the province of Babylon. So legislation might change action. You might force somebody by your rule or by your pressure to abide by what you say. Happens in church all the time, doesn't it? But it doesn't change their heart, doesn't make them willing. And people will either conform and think that that makes them righteous because I obeyed the rules, or they'll leave and go someplace where not so much is demanded of them. And neither one of those things is good. And no one is allowed to speak against God, but the false gods are not renounced. Notice that. That's very important in there. And the fear of punishment is not the same as the fear of God. I don't want the consequences. I don't want the problems. I don't want the punishment. Doesn't mean I really love God. Doesn't mean I want God. Doesn't mean I desire him. In fact, I'd rather avoid the punishment and then have God just leave me alone for the rest of my life and take me to heaven when I die. See, that's not salvation. It's not even close. And understand that exclusivity is demanded by God, and that's a sticking point for the religious. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and then he expands it in case we misunderstood. And no one comes to the Father but through me. The Bible says there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved, right? And so the idea of just saying I'll add a God onto my collection of gods doesn't get the attention of heaven, not at all. It's when we renounce all of those things. It talks about the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians. They turned from their idols to the true and the living God. Well, this is where Nebuchadnezzar is messed up. He's added a little bit of God. God is like a salt shaker in his life. He kind of sprinkles it onto his life and it gives it a little bit of flavor, 
but it's not really the main course. God calls us to make him the main course, the main thing in our lives. And we are to love him with everything we've got. That's the great commandment, right? Uh, The greatest commandment. So we'll conclude by saying salvation is always by God's grace because we're always undeserving, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And repentance, faith, and surrender are necessary for salvation. And many who claim to be saved have more in common with Nebuchadnezzar than they do with the gospel. I said earlier, that was me at one time. I hope it's not you. And we must be aware and we must be concerned and we ought to be moved and compassionate, loving and prayerful prayerful for people that we are concerned about like this. Because Jesus told us, and I'll go back again to Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Now notice Jesus sets those things up. They are not signs of salvation. They are not fruits of salvation, are they? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Boy, those are chilling, chilling words. And that's why we've got to make sure, number one, that we truly are born again. That's why the Bible says, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. That's not a preacher trying to stir up people and trying to create doubt. That's the word of God. So you need to do that as a Sunday school teacher, as a church member. But we also have other people who need to do it as well. And the person that comes to me and they say, I have so much sin in my life, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I kind of find some assurance in that. The Holy Spirit is dealing with them. Now, maybe they need to get saved or maybe they are saved and they're just under conviction. But the person who says, I live a good life and my life is acceptable to God and I do all of this rule following and everything, nervous about those people because they sound like the people in Matthew chapter 7. And I don't want that to be them. I want them to be saved. So as you take this, and teach this lesson, examine yourself, but please pray for our church and pray for the people in your class because a lot of people indeed are deceived and we don't want them to be deceived. These things are written in the Gospel of John, it says, that you might believe and know that you have eternal life. That's what we want people to have is that blessed assurance that is based upon truth. Thank you for your time and thank you for your study teachers and thank you for the work and ministry that you do. I surely appreciate it. God bless you. And for those of you who watch this because you uh, wanted to keep up with your class, way to go. That's, that's a good job and that's what we need. And I really, really appreciate it. So we'll see you next week and may the Lord bless you. And again, thank you so much for tuning in.